Amen. Please be seated. Before I read our primary scripture passage this morning, I'm going to read another passage from the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It just so happens that Matt asked me to preach unplanned on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. And what a joy it is to fill in for Matt because you all have an outstanding pastor. He is a great man. I get to see him in different contexts, and he loves you. He considers it a great privilege to bring the Word of God to you, and that his highest calling is to shepherd you and to look after you. And he is just a phenomenal guy. So I am glad to be here on Pastor Appreciation Sunday and uh, recognize you, Matt. So this week, esteem the one that the God has called to shepherd you. That's one of my charges, but let's now turn to the Gospel of Luke. See what God has primarily to say to us today. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9, the Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with content. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your house. Help us to humble yourselves this morning and to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Late September, I was uh, traveling down to Ligonier Ministries, which is near Orlando, and I had a connection through the airport in Charlotte. And uh, I was walking into Terminal C, This is sort of the busiest terminal in the Charlotte airport. And I'm walking into Terminal C, and as I'm walking in, two men were walking out. Two very different men. Two men dressed 
completely differently. Two men, different demeanors. And two men en route to different destinations. Jesus tells us a story about two different men. Common for Jesus to speak in terms of twos. If you think back about the parables and the stories that he would tell, he'll talk about two gates, two roads, one narrow, one wide. Two types of fruit, one good, one bad. Two types of houses, two types of foundations, one solid, one made of sand. Here Jesus is speaking of two men. That's all he says in the first phrase. Two men. So at that point, he hasn't defined them. Jesus does that in a way to hint to us there's a universal application here. Two men go up to the temple to pray. Then two men finish at the temple and they go off to different destinations, to different destinies. It's very, very important to listen to this parable of Jesus and to listen to the outcomes of these two men. I'm going up to the temple to pray. In those days, that's like saying, I'm going to church. Hundred and seventy-five people in front of me came up Westminster Drive to CRPC to pray. And in about thirty minutes, you'll leave and you'll go to different destinations. And here's the thing you'll either go as the Pharisee or you'll go as the tax collector. So, the story of two men is very important because ultimately, you're in it. Ultimately, one of these men is your story. So let's look at these two different men. The first is a Pharisee. He is a member of a small sect that devoted themselves to the study of the law. So he's an expert in the law. If somebody could have an MDiv, a THM, a DMIN, and a PhD in the law, this individual has one. He's an expert in the main thing in a culture that revolves around it. We like to say that we're a culture of laws, uh, but not quite the same. What do I mean by that? Well, we're probably 250 meters from I-81, There's a law that governs the speed, but most people on it today are going to treat it as a suggestion, right? We Americans hire accountants and tax attorneys to help us live as less as possible in connection to the tax code. Not so in Israel. They revolved life revolved around the law. So he's an expert in the thing that's most important to them. He's respected. He's revered. 
And he agrees with their assessment. A friend of mine posted this meme on social media this week. Said, not every man can post this, but I can. My wife has a great husband. He did that as a joke. But the Pharisee is the kind of guy that would post that and mean it. So that's one guy. The other is a tax collector. And in every era of every century, no one likes the tax collector. Okay? They take your money. You get your pay stub. There's a number at top, at the top. That is a wonderful number. Then there are numbers below it. And in front of each of those numbers is a minus sign. And then there's the number at the bottom. That's what you get. And everything between the number you like and what you get goes to the tax man. No one likes the tax man. But at least when we pay the tax man, we're paying our tax man. We're paying the IRS, who whether we like them or not, they work for our government. Not so here. He works for the empire. Uh, My wife and I have watched two different films recently. Each of them took place, uh, the, the story takes place in the Second World War. Each of them set in a country that's occupied by the Nazis in the Second World War. Each of them contained individuals, locals, that took jobs for the Nazis in the Second World War, oppressing their neighbors. That gives you a hint how these people thought of the tax collector. Because he's taking taxes for the people that are occupying them. And not only that... Anything above and beyond the emp- what the empire requires him to turn in, he gets to keep. So he squeezes his neighbors. He gets every dime out of them that he can. The Pharisee is an expert in the law. The tax collector is an expert in extortion of his neighbors. He's a weasel. He's a lowlife. He's the scum of the earth of that town. He's hated by his neighbors. And you know what? Like the Pharisee, he agrees with their assessment of him. Two very different men. And then they go into the temple. And they pray two very, very different prayers. First, the Pharisee. He stands up. By himself, and man does he worship. He worships what he loves most. He worships himself. What do we learn in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? First thing, what is our primary purpose? What is our chief end? To glorify God. This expert goes in, and his chief end is to glorify himself. And he does that in two ways. The first is by comparison. Thank you, God, that I am not like 
everybody else. Can you imagine if somebody came up here and prayed pastoral prayer? Oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like those people in the fifth row or the sixth row or on the left or on the right. That's what he's doing. Thank you that I am not like other men. That seems absurd. But if we moved up that reflection period at the end of the sermon to right now, and I said, think about how many times this week you may, if you're honest, have thanked, been thankful you're not like somebody else. I've been in the ministry long enough to know that everyone could come up with a list. So, he does that, we do that. Then he does it with achievements. He worships himself with achievements. I fast twice a week. Now, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, it gives the requirement for fasting. Once a year. So what he is proclaiming to everyone is, hey, I fast more than a hundred times more than the rest of you. I'm more than a hundred times better than you. And I tithe. I don't care what you just put in the offering plate. I tithe more than you. These are his points. In two verses, he uses the first person five times. Two short verses. He uses the first person Five times. One of the other things I do in life now is I I teach courses for a Christian university, graduate and undergraduate. And invariably, in every term, in every class, uh, with my undergraduates, I will get papers, and there will be one or two students that I will have to write in the notes You need to avoid using the first person in your academic writing. But here's the thing. It's just a paper that they're presenting to a professor. This is his prayer before the Almighty God. And he is standing up and glorifying himself five times. Each time with the first person he uses an active verb. It's a testimony to his goodness. It's a testimony to his righteousness. But here's the thing. He's an expert in the law, but he's totally forgotten the most important thing that Zach read when he read Deuteronomy 9 last week. The most important thing this expert has forgotten. And that's that no one gets into the promised land due to their own righteousness. This man can't get over how good he is. But in the end, he's too good for his own good. And then there's the tax collector. And he's no good. He's no good. And he knows it. He stays apart He prays looking down in shame. 
He beats his chest in anguish. The only time I ever know of the beating of the chest in Scripture is a few chapters later, after the crucifixion, after the Son of God has been put on the cross and his blood shed as an atoning sacrifice and the people leave, Luke tells us the people beat their chests in anguish. That's how he feels. He hates his sin and he hates himself. His prayer is totally unlike the Pharisee. He prays the only prayer he can. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Definite article. I literally have no idea why the ESV has the indefinite article there. Because in Greek, it's a definite article. And it's important. Could be someone at Crossway was typing, I love my iPhone, but maybe they were typing this passage out on their iPhone and autocorrect kicked in, right? We've all been there. But it's the definite article, and that's important because he's saying there's no comparison. There's no favorable contrast that I can draw upon. I am the worst person here. That's very important. Charles Spurgeon used to say, the nearer a man is to God, the more he mourns his own evil heart. The tax collector's honest self-knowledge has led to God-knowledge. He mourns his sin, and in doing so, he shows that he's the one, not the Pharisee. He's the one that's actually an expert in the knowledge of God. He has a real understanding of who he's standing before. That he's standing before the God that's holy, holy, Holy. Sometimes you've got to remember who you're dealing with. The other night, I went to take out my dog for the last time, and I opened the door and I looked out across the field, and there's the moon, gigantic, like, like a big white dinner plate hanging there in the sky. And to the right, slightly below it, and obviously beyond it, was this another, another incredibly bright object. Which I recognize as Jupiter. This is one of those moments where the solar system reaches out and slaps you in the face. And I remembered in that moment how Matt had pointed out in the line and the hymn last week about how we are on this terrestrial ball. We're just, in that moment, I stood there and I'm like, I'm just on a terrestrial ball in the middle of space that goes beyond and beyond and beyond and beyond all that we know. 
And there is that bright dot. Brilliant in the sky. And I can see it. And here's the thing. It's 444 million miles away. Think about that. Think about what you can see from a mile away. And there in the sky, clear, brilliant, 444 miles away is this enormous, colossal, incredible planet in Jupiter. Now that's fascinating, but it's not the point. The point is, think about the enormity of that thing and then realize our Creator made it. Think about the enormity of Him. The tax collector knows the enormity of the God that he's standing in front of. And he cries for mercy. Be merciful to me. This is no common plea for mercy. Here's an old rock song called Mercy, Mercy. came out in the early 60s. First put out by a guy named Don Covey and the Good Timers. Jimi Hendrix actually plays guitar on this song. Some people have heard it and they think the title is Have Mercy. Have Mercy. Have Mercy, baby. Have Mercy on me. It's about a guy asking his girlfriend to have mercy on him. Not to cast him out of her life. Now, he's asking for Mercy with a certain sense of gravity. But, you know, it's a bad thing if your girlfriend casts you out of their life. But, you know, in the end, if she doesn't give him mercy, the reality is there are other fish in the sea. The tax collector, on the other hand, is crying out for mercy. And this is the one chance he has. There's only one God. There's only one true God. And he needs his mercy. So he cries out before this one true holy, holy, holy God. Please have mercy on me. Don't cast me out. That's crying have mercy on a whole different level. He's crying, have mercy, on the highest level, but he's doing it in the very best place. He's doing it in the very best place. He's doing it in the home. He's doing it in the temple, the home of the mercy seat. Have mercy. Verb form. Mercy seat. Noun form. Same word. He's saying, Almighty God, please make atonement for me. Make that blood that's been put on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sin apply to me. Forgive my sins. Remove your wrath. Unlike the five active verbs of the Pharisee, he's only got a passive one. Do something for me I can't do for myself. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who know no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The almighty creator of all things put our sin on his son so that through his atoning sacrifice we might receive his perfect righteousness. A.W. Tozer said, The only sin Jesus ever had was ours, and the only righteousness we can ever have is his. Christ will do everything or nothing, and the only hope is to throw ourselves unreservedly on his mercy and trust him for all. J. Gresham Machen. The tax collector was absolutely no good, but the results of this prayer always are. This is the prayer that brings the perfect righteousness of God. Does it apply to you? Are you a tax collector? Let's go back to Romans 3. Matt preached a few months ago. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For everyone in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of a sudden, you're the tax collector. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what the tax collector was praying for. Be my atoning sacrifice. And God heard him. Two different men, two different prayers, two different destinies. Just like those two men walking out of Terminal Seat in Charlotte to two different destinations, two men leave the temple with two different destinies. One's the smartest theologian in town. He's a frequent conference speaker. People want him to endorse their book if they write one. They subscribe to his podcast. Okay? He left that day and he headed to his eventual home which was hell. That was his destiny. No one enters the promised land in their own righteousness. He put his trust in the Son of Man in whom there was no salvation. And when he departed that day, his very plans perished forever. He prayed, but God never knew him. Jesus had prepared no place for him. The tax collector is different. He came in no good. He asked for mercy. The blood was applied to him. And he left clothed in a perfect righteousness. Jesus 
has a place for him. He went to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. To those who are confident in their righteousness, Jesus told the story of two different men. And because they're a Pharisee and a tax collector at a temple in the Gospel of Luke, sometimes we equate this as being meaningful to other people. But it's for you. It's your story. Next week, Matt's going to return to Romans 15, I think. Earlier in Romans 15, it points out, why were the things that recorded in Scripture? To instruct us, to inform us. This story was written in Scripture to inform us here today. Psalm 139.16, the psalmist reminds us that all the days of our life are written in the Lord's book before we live one of them. Jesus knew you would go up to CRPC to pray. He knew I would preach this passage. You're either too good for your own good, or you know you're no good. And he's giving you this moment to pray the prayer that always turns out good because he's gracious, he's long suffering. He wants to cast no one out. God be merciful to me, the sinner. On 8 October 2023, 179 people came up the hill of Westminster Drive to CRPC to pray. You came up the hill to pray. Where will you go when you leave? Where will you find yourself when you eventually get home? Will you go to the home that you so richly deserve? Or will you gratefully go to the home that Jesus has paid for in full? Everybody leaves today going to one of those two places. What will it be for you? You can settle that now as we reflect on what we've heard from God's word. And please do settle it because in just a few minutes it'll be time to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word teaches us what we need to hear. We have come up the hill to pray. Give us ears to hear. Let us receive your grace, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious. 
Not because our lives have made payment, but because it is your free gift. Help us to go from this place not walking in the confidence of who we are, but in the confidence that we have been redeemed by a great Savior, and you see us as Him. In Jesus' name, amen.